everyone, and thank you for the download. It's Thursday, March 14th, and this is Episode 7 of the Marty Called Podcast. I'm Tim Grassi, and today I'm joined by my co-host, the Sultan Osaki. What's up, Josh? I don't always move out of my house, but when I do, it's right after I built a new deck and remodeled my basement. <laughs> and Skipper Ben, how's it going, Ben? We really doing this again? Yes. Yes, we are. You also uh, forgot to add, in the middle of tax season as well, Josh. Genius! <laughs> not, my, not my brightest move. Nailed it. And uh, my family is listening to this. By the way, we're moving, and I'm not telling you the new address. <laughs> I like that Tim is going to, in a few minutes, talk about how he would spend $1.5 billion after he admitted that he can't even handle like relocating his own family at the property <laughs> <up> here. <laughs> yeah, so as uh, Josh hinted at, uh, we, we come up with ideas for the next show, and then we come up with better ideas for that show, and we just push back more and more ideas. So uh, that and adding in what uh, Disney has announced recently has kind of fueled the topics of conversation for this show. But uh, Josh begged that Ben and I kick off the show with a Captain Marvel discussion. I think you ah. said you wanted nothing <laughs> nothing more than that. <laughs> it's so, I know that you guys are basically going to sound like the adults in the Peanuts cartoon to me when you're doing this, so I'll be sitting here quietly. <laughs> uh, ben, you saw Captain Marvel, I think, Sunday night, right? I did. I also saw it over the weekend. So, what what did you think? Uh, broad strokes. If you want to, um, if you if you don't want to be spoiled, I guess listeners, skip ahead five minutes or so. Um, we won't take up that much time with this because Josh has insisted with a gun to our heads that we don't talk too much about it. <laughs> yeah, and I don't really want to get into too many spoilers here. You know, just uh, just to be on the safe side, I think you and I can have a uh, maybe off uh, another discussion about this as we get closer to Endgame, but. Yep. In the overall scheme of things, I really enjoyed this fl- uh, flick. I don't know if it was, you know, in my upper echelon of the Marvel films, but it was uh, in the seventy-five uh, percent range in, in, on the positive side. I had a lot of fun with it. It went by very fast. That's the one thing I noticed with it: the uh, the action, uh, the story just kept moving. Yeah. Uh, even though I, I I usually get bogged down on uh, origin story type films uh, in the Marvel universe. They're not necessarily usually my favorites. Uh, I, I like these second episodes and uh, as the character moves along and progresses a little bit more. But this one, they just jump right into the action. I did like that, you know, we have established the different universes uh, in the MCU and that, you know, characters in space in a space battle is not out of the ordinary for us. So we can just jump right into it without having to set a whole lot of exposition. So I did like how this film just got right to it. And the way they kind of back told her origin story through some flashbacks, which were done in some very unique ways, even through uh, being captured by uh, certain people and using the way they were trying to extract information from her as the way they built her origin story out. I thought that was a very unique way to do that uh, and broke the mold from what Marvel has typically done in the past. But, you know, I love the, ni- uh, the, the references to the 90s. Sometimes I thought it was forced a little too much. Uh, the soundtrack. See, I, I could have used more. I mean, I, I love the nineties nostalgia, but I know what you mean. Yeah, there, there just seemed a few points where, and maybe it wasn't the references that they actually did in the film. I think I had more issues with some of the music that was used in the film that tried to just uh, tried a little too much to remind us that we were in the nineties at all times. But uh, I, I had a lot of fun with it. I liked the characters. I liked the people that we met. Uh, I liked how they twisted some of the backstories of some of the uh, characters that we know from the comics and 
what I thought was going to happen in the next phase of Marvel films after Endgame might not be actually be the direction they're going to uh, in unless they're just totally deceiving us from this film and going in another way. I thought I thought Secret Wars was definitely going to be lined up for the next big arc of the Avengers. And I'm not so sure coming out of this film now, but I had a lot of fun. I dug it. I liked it. And I want to see more Captain Marvel, uh, you know, here in another what month and a half, two months now. I was surprised by how well it did in the box office as well. But you you hit on something that I think in the last few years of these movies, they've done exceptionally well, where they don't spoon feed you exposition. They don't spoon feed you backstory that you don't need. And I think it really kicked off with Spider-Man because the Spider-Man franchise has been rebooted 47 times. And with this one, they rebooted that with about a sentence of of backstory in Civil War. And in this case, I would say that it it started out a little bit slower from a, uh, I mean, granted it was not, it was nonstop action from the beginning, but about 20 to 30 minutes in, it turns into a buddy comedy. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is great. So uh, we won't get too deep into my conspiracy theories and endgame theories uh, about this movie. But figure that we'd at least touch upon it because both Ben and I are big fans. And if you guys want to talk about that on the Facebook page, we certainly can. And, and I think a little bit deeper. I think there's a chance here uh, in the next few weeks that we might have a uh, special episode of Marty called where Josh will just come on here and tell us everything he knows about the Marvel universe <laughs> and you and I will chime in. But uh, if Josh doesn't want to be a part of that, maybe you and I can hop on here and we can have a deeper discussion over the MCU as we lead up to Endgame, which is uh, the center of my universe right now. Sure. April 15th. Does that work for you? <laughs> that works. Let's do it. All right. What day, are you, what, day, what day are you closing on your house? That, that might be a good one, too. I've timed everything for April 14th. For the record, I neither object to nor understood anything that either of you just said. <laughs> glad, glad to have you part of the team. <laughs> well, you're you're, you're going to love how I'm about to spend my 1.5 billion then. <laughs> oh, boy. So Ben is teasing something. Uh, I think it was either last episode or the uh, episode before that. We uh, I, I threw out something about how Disney wasted money on next gen uh, to the tune of about $2 billion. And that's, I think what has been publicly acknowledged for it. So we decided to uh, assign ourselves a budget of 1.5 billion. And then I threw frozen ever after, which I hate on there, which had a, a cost of $75 million where these were things that we were criticizing from the outset and how we could have better spent the money um, uh, in hindsight. So we're going to talk about that after the news but uh, just how we would each spend $1.575 billion will be kind of how we end up the show today uh, in our more hypothetical imagineering type discussion. But since we last recorded, there's been some major news about both Epcot and Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And rather than summarize it, um, why don't we just go right into whether we, whether we like these announcements, whether we're excited about these announcements um, some of these even are fueled, especially Epcot, with some things that we said on the last show where we wanted a direction. So starting with Epcot, do we look at this as a definitive direction for that park, these changes that they've announced to the entrance? Well, one point does not a line make. Uh, but having said <laughs> that, this is a good point. You know, it seems as though they are taking some some putting some thought into the aesthetic of the park and perhaps looking back at to what made Epcot the, a place that so many people love, which was, you, you know, an uncluttered, uh, clean sightline uh, environment that's fun to be in. And, it, you know, Epcot has proven, I think, despite the horrible things that have happened to it, that it is a, a wonderful place to spend time 
Um, by virtue of the fact that it's still a crowded park, notwithstanding the fact that so many attractions have been taken away from it or destroyed. So um, this is, in my mind, a way of playing to the strengths of Epcot, which is that it is still a place where people like to go. Um, and there's a lot of lessons that were learned in the 90s and early 2000s as to what constitutes you know, an environment that people are going to gravitate toward. And I think they're they're simply going back to what was demonstrably successful. So to me, uh, I can't say that it represents a definitive direction for the park. In fact, I still think there's a big question mark hanging over it as to where we're going to end up. I don't think we really know that. But at least in terms of one data point, is this a decision that I think is a good one and it's going to increase my enjoyment of going there? Um, Yes. The... The entrance area, uh, for, for those people that don't know this, they're getting rid of the Leva Legacy monoliths, moving them outside of the park, and returning that entrance area to one that is uh, more rich with flower beds and just open and giving guests a better view of Spaceship Earth upon entering the park. So I, I appreciate the aesthetic change, but should we applaud something that was a, them fixing a mistake? Yes. What if it takes them 20 years like it did, though? Well, but so I think you have to be very careful here. You don't you don't want to create any organization, no matter how well run, no matter how smart, is capable of making an error. That's just part of life, whether we're talking about individuals or your your wife or husband or boyfriend or girlfriend or some yeah. multi-billion dollar corporation. Um, you can't really learn much about an organization or individual by the degree to which they avoid screwing up. But you can learn a tremendous amount about them by seeing how they respond to it. Now, I agree with you that this has been this is a very late correction to yeah, what I think was a, shouldn't how they respond to it shouldn't time be a factor to that yes but should but at some point you have to acknowledge that doing it late is better than doing it never fair yep yep so I, I don't disagree with you is 20 years a little bit on the long <laughs> side uh yes it is uh, you know you, you could have we got nine more years and then you get fixed <laughs> I, I mean there are people who are you know ostensibly being born when those tombstones were being installed that are now legally able to go in there and drink. So it's not a, you know, the timetable sucks for sure, but I'm glad that they're doing it because, and if we're too critical, if, if we believe that we have a voice as customers, you know, as consumers, which, which I believe that we do to some degree, um, we don't want to create a disincentive for making these sort of corrections if they don't do them timely. But yes, I, I would like to see things like this done quickly in the future. Although Disney's shown that they're slow. I mean, how long did the wand stay up? And that was something that was explicitly stated was going to be a temporary installation. So I, I was just going to say they could have announced that we're putting the wand back up. So <laughs> let's appreciate the change yeah. that they are putting through right now. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the biggest things that I struggle with having decided to do Disney podcasts for the past few years is avoiding work, the trap. It, of, is ahead, working sorry. with is working with me and Tim. Yes, <laughs> but on a on a less specific scale, um, just <laughs> avoiding the trap of being overly negative because it's so easy to pick on right. the things that we don't like, and so I I really try to be pretty squarely in the corner of uh, applauding the company when they do things that at least I think are are strong positive decisions. So at the risk of being overly negative, I do find it interesting <laughs> that you know the, they announced the changes to the entrance of the park. The response they get online is from people thinking like, this is how it used to be. I love it. This is old Epcot again. While that you know announcement came on the same day that we're going to cram a ton of characters into this pavilion over here. Pay no attention to that. You're getting a new water fountain <laughs> and you're, you're getting the monoliths gone. We're going back to old Epcot at the entrance. You know, how much of this is fan service? Uh, again, to a small extent saying, you know, we're, we're going to give you little bits and pieces, but we're not going to really give you guys what you've really, really want. But at the same time, when you walk into the park, it's going to look like it used to. 
I mean, I, I think that you're not wrong. It is, it is. The thing is, is it really pandering if a company, when a company does things that their customers want, it's not pandering in the sense of a, of a politician going out and saying that they believe in things that they know that their constituents want to hear them say they believe in, right? It is their job as an organization to give their customers what they're clamoring for. Um, I think your point's well taken that there, there was a simultaneous decision there that most of that same group would disagree with. But the fact of the matter is we have to be somewhat pragmatic as, as customers and realize that a, a character-free Epcot is not, that isn't going to happen. Yeah, it's not so realistic. It's not realistic. So I, I think that we have to stand. And I mean, if we really drill down to the heart of what the show is supposed to be about, if we were in a board meeting discussing how we were going to handle this, if 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 not having characters in the park is off the table, then how do you present that? How do you package that in a way that is palatable to the consumer to the portion of your consumer base that doesn't like it. And part of it is, you know, to create the aesthetic around it in a way that is, is what they're asking for. So I think you're completely right. It's absolutely, it is. I, I forgot what word you used, like service to someone, but it's, it is customer service, which is their job. So I don't think it's a bad thing. We've discussed, uh, just in the fan community in general, whether or not we've discussed it on the show, I don't know, but with Epcot, with the future of Epcot having characters, personally, I like the idea of concentrating them. Now, I don't think the play pavilion is going to mean that there aren't going to be characters elsewhere in future world because we already know the Guardians of the Galaxy right. uh, building is going in. We know uh, the seas with Nemo and friends exists, but I do like the idea of concentrating them there. And I've said that you need people going to a Disney park expecting characters in some way, shape, or form, and whether they're wearing rainbow metallic jumpsuits or whether you're interacting with them in a way that is a little bit more in line with Epcot's uh, uh, approach to things, great. But what I, what I like is an idea of something that can be ever-changing. And if it's tied to characters, if not, I don't know. I've suggested that uh, Hollywood Studios should have a, the term is a black box theater, where whatever the movie is that's coming out, they have a stage show that goes with it and they, they have a new one basically every year where they just have a show that's refreshed and refreshed and you have something fresh that goes in there. If they can do something similar here, not necessarily a stage show, but something tied to whatever the last few movies are that came out and it's ever evolving. All right. It's not necessarily in line with what we anticipate for Epcot going back to the eighties and nineties, but I get the ability to freshen something up. And at least you're thinking, you're, you're thinking in that way of having something that is constantly being refreshed. And for that reason, I like it. If they can do it and have it, have that interventions uh, vibe or communicore vibe. Uh, great. I don't know that that's necessarily the plan. I think they're more concerned with just getting the characters in there. Excuse me. But um, I actually, I actually don't really oppose this all that much. There's other things that are going on in that park that bother me a lot more than this would. It's just that this is happening in conjunction with those things that just has people saying, hey, more characters. I, I agree with your thinking completely. I, I think on the last episode of Kingdom Cast, I referred to that pavilion as a as an outlet valve or a pressure relief valve for their impetus yeah. to put characters in. And if, if that has the potential to prevent a shoehorning of a character into an attraction that is already more appropriately placed than what it would be with a character, then, you know, this is, per I, I don't like this word so much, but it's like a prophylactic way to, to protect things that are already there. So in that respect, I like it. My, my concern about what you just said 
is I think the company has shown that their business model and their artistic model have a hard time uh, dancing in concert with each other sometimes. And the the thing I would point to would be uh, the original Star Tours attraction. You know, part of the value proposition of these screen-based attractions and simulator-based attractions is the ability to reprogram them down the road. But there seems to be a history of where whether it's later budgets don't allow for it or, you know, the spotlight of attention of management gets focused somewhere else. But it seems like that 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 initial plan to have this thing be something that's going to be dynamic over time frequently succumbs to remaining relatively static. Yep. So, uh, you know, it. I think that if Disney's really serious about using this new pavilion, I hate that name, by the way, Play Pavilion, I think it's just... I it, think that's it, a working it, title right now. I don't... I know. hope so, because it's one of the most uninspired and grating <laughs> names that I've ever heard well, come out of that company. It scares me, though. They have the Disney Play platform that I can just see it as a corporate tie-in to, to another product yeah. they have to help promote, promote that. So This is some douchey 37-year-old executive talking <laughs> about synergy who doesn't even know what that word means. Like It, it makes these horrible things happen. But, but anyway, um, I hope that if they're really looking at this pavilion as sort of, like you said, black box, I, I think of it almost as a, a Lego set, you know, where they can snap in new blocks and, and make tweaks and adjustments as, as uh, you know, the sensibilities of the day demand. I, I hope that the, the, you know, the bigger business unit of the parks and resorts division is, is on board with that and going to give them that support. Because otherwise, what you end up with is what Future World has succumbed to over and over again, which is, you know, just just being destroyed by the ravages of time because these things date out. You said something that kind of, I'm going to read one sentence, Ben, and then you can uh, go on. Uh, Something I wrote four years ago. Uh, It's forced by executives who fail to understand appropriate placemaking and think cohesion and synergy mean the same thing. (laughs) Moving on. Yeah. (laughs) I, I, I hate buzzwords because they allow people to be lazy. And instead of expressing the actual idea that matters, they just throw that word in there and, and feel as though they've done an adequate job of explaining the plan. Um, and it happens with very smart people in very big companies. And, and this is an example of that. Yep. Now, I was just going to say that I have no problem uh, with this pavilion if it is used, in fact, in that black box type scenario. And if it you if it takes the characters being a part of it to give the Imagineers a space where they can test new technology and, you know, play test. I, I, I love the concept of, that, that really plays into what, you know, interventions and Epcot used to have around play test. Some of this stuff that they don't know if it'll work on a larger scale, give it a try here, see if it works. If it has to go through the use of characters for us to be able to see that I've got no problem with it, but kind of going back to what Josh said, I'm fearful that we're in for another, you know, toy story mania type situation where, you know, we're, we're sold that, Hey, we can t- change these scenes out, change things out anytime we want. And, what we've had one change in that attraction since it yeah. opened and, and that's an easy change that they can make on that thing and they don't commit to it. So let alone if they go for much more expensive ideas and concepts, how committed will they be to actually doing that? Yeah. It's almost like the, you know, if, if we had our true wish of the show where we could just maybe not be beholden to upper management or we are upper management or, or money's not, you know, we're in sandbox mode and money's not an object. I almost feel as though, part of the budget for, for uh, creating a pavilion like this needs to include the funds to make those changes later on. Because yeah, right. other, otherwise, you are dependent upon a potentially different management team greenlighting you doing the second phase of this thing. And um, you know the people who suffer most when those things don't happen are, are the fans. Um, and Disney fans, we are, me included, 
uh, terrible consumers because no matter we could love this stuff enough to be on a podcast about it, but we're not. We don't hold them to the fire enough to, to stop spending our money there when they do things that we disagree with. So, um, you know, the free market falls down when when we're slaves to the product like we are. Let's say they call this the digital pavilion. Let's just throw that name. It's out. already a billion times better. I still right. think it sucks, but it's way better right. than the play but pavilion. Let, let, Digital digital play pavilion. Okay, <laughs> conceptually, <laughs> like let's say that they're using this as uh, an education on computer generated imaging, that sort of thing, and tying in the characters with that knowledge base. Um, there's something else that Imagineering does. They use a uh, tool called Cave, or at least they did, and whether or not they've evolved that, where they have, in many cases, a 180 degree curved screen to simulate attractions in the future. And something that uh, Jim Hill and Len Testa hinted at on a recent show was they could potentially bring this technology or something similar to it into the pavilion. And in addition to the character component of it, possibly have you revisiting past experiences that existed in the park. This is something I've long clamored for. You could do it on a small scale. It would allow for uh, recreation of things. And you might not necessarily get every detail of it, but it would certainly allow for reminiscing about long yep. but not forgotten attractions and do so. It's the brewery model. You yeah. know, why do people go to people who love beer like going to breweries because they like to see how it's made. Mm-hmm. And people who love Disney are going to be fascinated by by having the opportunity to see that process. And you know, the studios were <laughs> perhaps a failed example of that because they they had trouble doing it on the scale of an entire park, which I which I can understand. Um, but you know, having one pavilion where there's like you say one you know, piece of equipment that's turned into an attraction that that is, you know, tied to how these characters that people love are made. Um, mm-hmm. it, it almost seems like a no brainer to me. But even even if we don't do the uh, experience where you get to visit old Epcot attractions, say it's a big Hero Six experience. You know, most of us will never have access to that kind of technology sure. ever. So make something using that tech and blow our minds with it. Yeah. Uh, I, I would love that. That would be amazing. Right. And when you have experiences like that, you can create that virtual world. And it may not be the true Oculus Rift type virtual reality experience, but still you have that component in a a relatively barren building right now where it doesn't just have to be, you know, character interactions. And I don't know what the full build out of this is going to be. We only have a single piece of concept art and it does look aesthetic wise like the interior of, um, interventions so very much so so i'm I'm hopeful that there is a level of evolution there because interventions well you might it might not have been your favorite place in the world it did it did change relatively frequently and it was driven by corporate sponsorship so perhaps this is driven by internal sponsorship where they're using this as part of the marketing budget of some of these movies as they're coming out that's an entirely uh realistic scenario that can play out here well, if if it is truly like a play testing type deal, you know, they have kind of dipped their toe in this before in the past and it had a very short shelf life. Now, granted, the experience wasn't very great, but, you know, I, I liked what they did with the Legend of Jack Sparrow deal over okay. at Hollywood Studios a few years ago. It wasn't a great experience, but it was a way for them to, you know, test some of the mapping technology and some of the, oh, yeah. uh, you know, fusion technology that, that they've later carried on to other aspects of the park. They put it in the Shanghai Pirates. It was a proof of concept. Exactly. But it gave us something to do, and it was something better than just a blank soundstage that wasn't being used uh, very often at all. But, you know, 
take taking that in there, put it put put something like that in there for a year or two, take that out, go in with the next piece of technology that we might see an attraction later on. I think uh, there's a lot of value to that. I also think that Disney Quest being gone, um, you know, means that they can do some of this on a small scale without cannibalizing yeah. their own other offer. Um, because I I do think there's maybe an issue in 2019 where this doesn't have enough legs to stand on its own, uh, you know, as a, <laughs> as a a la carte offering where people have to pay extra because let's face it, computer technology, you know, computer generated imagery is not in 2019, the mind blowing thing that it was 25 years ago. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not opportunities there to, to entertain people for, for five to 10 minutes. Josh, you've said something about technology in some of the earlier versions of this uh, podcast. I think this was back when uh, Gary was on, where we understand technology or we'll, we're, we will acknowledge technology to the extent that it is moderately uh, a step above what we're doing beforehand. So if you're doing a voice-to-text thing or voice activation thing, if it works 75 80% of the time, you'll tolerate it because it's still better than what was there previously. And I think on this smaller scale level of testing, perhaps what Imagineering is working on or what Disney internally is working on, a pavilion like this may allow for that, may allow for those Jack Sparrow-type encounters before you build it out into an e-ticket attraction. But you get to see, all right, this is a component of something we want to do later on and test things out in there and possibly tease us with what's to come. Which yeah. Is I mean, th- there's definitely a threshold above which we just pretend that it works fine, no matter how much of a pain in the ass it is, like Wi-Fi, for example. You yeah. know, everyone's, I'm sure, had to turn their Wi-Fi off and back on again. You probably didn't think twice about it. You just do it. Right. But if, you, but if the effect, you know, if the reliability dropped by 10%, people wouldn't just be more irritated and continue to use it. They would just refuse to use it. So it's, it's, it's a very bright line in the sand, which is not necessarily what you'd intuitively think. So certainly if you're going to invest tens or hundreds of million dollars in an attraction, you want to know on what side of the line you are if you're going to you know, put an effect forward or something like that. The thing that I find mildly amusing about the improvement to the Epcot entrance, and don't get me wrong, despite what I said before and trying to play devil's advocate here, I think it looks great and I'm really looking forward to how it ends up. But um, you improve the Epcot entrance, yet you still have a giant building off to the left that has been yeah. nowhere to be seen in well, any of the concept art. There's that, and there's another giant building off to the left, which everyone has seen, both in concept art and real life, which is that Garden Guardians of the That's Galaxy show building. Oh, okay. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. I thought you were talking about your hypothetical Starbucks that was out there. In the <laughs> no, forest. no, no. So wait, so there's that wait. As well. are, are, are we on the, are, are we are we not getting the Starbucks? I thought. I well, thought that was done. What's, what's funny is I thought I was going to have to eat crow on this episode because on Jim Hill's last <laughs> episode, he was talking about the demolition of Communicore and how it was going to include the Starbucks. <laughs> and, and he, he, if he didn't actually corroborate Tim's theory about that building, via Starbucks, <laughs> he came very close to corroborating I'm, it. I'm fairly certain that's going to be food and in, in all likelihood, Starbucks. I, so, I still say that that is a, you know, a, a very rough concept of a big picture idea and not a blueprint, but it does seem as <laughs> though there's at least the strength of my argument is a little weaker this week than it was we we don't call we don't call tim tim hill for nothing (laughs) (laughs) for you so (laughs) people that don't know what we're talking about on the right side of the epcot entrance concept art there's a very vague looking mystery building and perspective puts this somewhere either in morocco or interventions west it's really kind of hard to tell where it is and yeah there's there's very hard to tell depth in that because there's a forest in that painting that doesn't really exist in real life. So right. there's not there's and this building's not attached to anything. So there it basically is just 
it's a bogey. There's just no way of knowing exactly where it is. The thing that throws me, uh, and it doesn't really throw me, it just has me focusing on it, is that, as Josh said, that concept art just has trees and not much else there. Why not extend those happy little trees, Bob Ross style, a little bit higher and hide whatever this building is? It's almost as if it's deliberately put in there to make us think that it's going to be something major, but I suspect that it's a Starbucks. Yeah, I'm not going to get my hopes up for anything, but uh, (laughs) I do think... But but trying to, to circle back to what you just said, um, dealing with that Guardians of the Galaxy show building is obviously an issue to the extent that the company still cares about sightlines. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. evidence to suggest that 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 sightlines are not the priority to them that they used to be. I, I think you can almost say that objectively as being fact. Yeah. Now. Epcot. yeah, exactly. Exhibit A. But um, I will say that there is a you if you have if you are a normally sighted, intellectually normal person. Um, it's hard not to want to look at Spaceship Earth. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that you clear that opening to where you you have a more dramatic reveal there, um, you're doing something to draw the attention of of people coming into the park away from the periphery and into the center. Uh, it doesn't make sense. I mean, those leave a legacy monuments, I, I'm trying to call them by their real name instead of tombstones. <laughs> I mean, I'm six foot five and I can't see over them. You know, imagine if I were four years old, that, you know, there's no clear vision. Or shorty at my height. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think that in addition to just being an overall aesthetic improvement because it's less cluttered and gross and more open yeah. and green and nice, there is a, I think, practical uh, advantage that they're going to get in terms of the, the draw away from that show building that it's going to provide. Oh, absolutely. I just wish they would paint the Guardian show building like a, a- light pinkish color so when you see it from the top of the tower of terror it looks like it's just part of morocco (laughs) the likeliest scenario so we we can't with with the guardians building it's a hot it's a hard building to hide obviously given its size i'm willing to wait but i only because it's not done yet i just don't know how they could possibly hide it and i complain about um the flight of passage navi river journey building that you can see it from the parking lot if the sacrifice for good sight lines in the park is lousy sight lines from the parking lot, I think at this point we'd all accept that. Yeah. But I'm not sure what can be done inside the park short of my kind of joking, kind of serious suggestion on, um, I think I mentioned that on the e-ticket. I might've just thrown it out there on WDW magic, but just put a bigger building in front of it. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned the parking lot because I'm going to, I'm going to discuss that a little bit when we get into our, uh, our later part of the show. Okay. So, but uh, short of that, I mean, you can't see the uh, the third Soren Theater because the first two Soren Theaters block the view of that building. So you can go with that same concept of, all right, you put another big building in front of it that masks it from, from World Showcase. Perhaps you uh, scale up the Space Pavilion or something to that effect. And then it's not as visually intrusive from within the park. Um, short of that, you put in trees, uh, a denser forest, as the concept art indicates, perhaps you can't see it from future world and it's, it's masked from within the park. We don't know the end game yet. Uh, Marvel pun kind of. Well, well, when I, uh, put star Wars into Epcot and I build the indoor forest in front of it, you you won't see the building. Exactly. The Ewok village village will cover it up. (laughs) Uh, do you guys have anything else on Epcot or do you want to move on to the star Wars announcements? There were Star Wars announcements? There was a few. Oh. Yeah, I have nothing else for Epcot. 
So <laughs> last show, we discussed the idea of a split opening. Um, we were expecting that uh, the Smuggler's Run, the Millennium Falcon attraction, would be delayed just based on rumors that are never true. And we said, if it's not ready, don't open it. So Disney has, in their infinite wisdom, not listened to us once again. <laughs> and they are splitting the opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, both in Disneyland and Disney World, by having uh, the Millennium Falcon attraction open first and Rise of the Resistance opening at some point later. Um, it is possible that this is not an Imagineering issue, that this is actually a management decision. Uh, let's start with Josh, because I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. Ready? <laughs> go. Yeah. Um, I think it's the wrong choice. Um, okay. I think I think it's going to create resentment among guests who are who are going there and going to get part of the experience. I also think it's going to result in those guests making multiple trips and generating more revenue for the company. So, from the standpoint of a guest, it's annoying to me. Mm -hmm. uh, from the standpoint of someone who appreciates business decisions that re result in more profit, um, I think it's probably not going to hurt them at all. Um, but I think when you take a few steps back you have to question the quality of the business decision because I don't think that it, I don't think that it benefits the reputation. I don't think that it is a way to uh, engender loyalty. Although, as I've said, I think that we are suckers as customers, so they could probably get away with it just <laughs> fine. Uh, but, you know, is it, is it the most, is it the way to create the best experience for, for their guests? I don't think that it is. And I think it's going to be a logistical disaster. Um, there's just going to be so much human pressure in those parks at those grand openings with insufficient capacity to absorb them. So uh, I think there's somewhat of a risk of it being a very bad experience. If you're one of the first people to experience this new land. What do you think about it, Ben? Uh, I'm glad you said it this way too, because uh, when this news first came out, you know, a lot of people went quickly to saying that there must be very light bookings going on into uh, the summer and uh, into the, into the fall because of people waiting for Galaxy's Edge, which I do agree there's a, a lot to that, but I think there's a lot to the double dip as well, knowing that they're going to get people for the first go around and then they'll get those people to come back because they have to do uh, Rise of the Resistance you know, quickly afterwards as well. So I think there is a lot, uh, profit-wise, they're thinking they can get people to come back multiple times as if they weren't going to do that already, but this right. is a way to force them to do that. But also, like Josh said, I can't think of anything in the world I'd want to do less than to be there that first month or so, or, or at least <laughs> until Rise of the Resistance opens. I want to experience this so bad, but there's no way I would go with only half of the capacity in that section working, uh, especially on the Hollywood studio side where there's just nothing much else to do in that park. It's I mean, going to be imagine. miserable. It's got, what is the wait for that attraction going to be? I mean, it's going to be all day. All, it's going to be, it's gonna be all day. It is. Yeah. Yep. I mean, if it goes, if it goes, imagine you're a guest, you go there and God forbid you bring your family oh. and, you're, and you're aligned for three, four, five hours. And Wait. you know what, you know what new attractions do? They go down because they yeah. don't have the kinks worked out. I mean, that is going to be a, I mean, there's a lot of things Disney guests complain about where you, you have to roll your eyes because they're being prima donnas. But if you're standing out in the sun for that long, you know, baking and you don't get to have that experience, um, that is a truly horrible experience. I, I can't imagine being the poor, uh, you know, guest services or, uh, person who has to deal with those customers is going to be really, really bad for them. Is there a way they could have done this where it wasn't an operational nightmare? I mean, we recognize opening both attractions is what our suggestion was, but even with both attractions open, is there a way they could have done this where it wasn't an operational nightmare short of just capping the number of guests that go in? 
I, to be honest, I don't know how they would do that because I mean, the way I view it is this, they essentially have, they're trying to fit 30 gallons of water into a five gallon bucket. I mean, it's a good problem to have, but they just have way more demand than they can possibly supply. Um, and I don't think there's any way around that, that they would want to have. Um, that said by cutting their supply in half, they're essentially making the problem twice as bad as it has to be. So, um, I'm sure there's a strategy behind it. I don't think, you know, I don't look at what Disney does and assume that they just didn't think about it. I assume that they just were considering factors that, you know, and weighed them differently than I do. But it it does seem to me from a guest perspective that this is going to be a pretty unpleasant experience potentially. So for those people that want to experience it first, there's going to be a pretty high price to pay for that in terms of patience and frustration. I didn't originally agree with that, but now that I've heard you make that point five times, uh, You swung my opinion on it. Uh, I, For those listeners who don't know, we've had some recording issues tonight. And that's about the seventh time that we've recorded that segment. So hopefully, it goes to the end of the show, and we can actually have the the effed up audio. That, that it's amazing. Uh, I going back uh, on point there a little bit. Uh, I do find it interesting what they're doing with the reservation system out at Disneyland, though, uh, yeah. with people having to go online, reserve your time. You're not even guaranteed that you'll get that spot. Uh, the with the people re, uh, having resort packages and staying at a Disney resort hotel, they're only guaranteeing them one time to be able to go in. They didn't say anything, I believe, about the window of time that you'll have allowed in there. But that I, you know, nobody who's booking a trip out there is expecting to go be able to go to Star Wars one time for a small amount of time during their stay. So it is interesting. I don't think they've ever taken this angle before with trying to. Uh, control the crowds, uh, especially down around something that's opening uh, on this scale. But that is one way they're tackling it. They don't believe, you know, they haven't said anything about how, if they're going to do this in Florida. Uh, obviously, it'd be a little bit more difficult considering how many more resorts there are. But, you know, do we think this will work with them uh, controlling those crowds? I don't know that there's a way, and, and Josh hit on it, you hit on it as well, Ben, that there is a way that this can be done without without having eight hour waits. So if they govern the number of people that can get in the land and almost treat it like a cast member preview or an annual pass holder preview, like they did with Pandora, um, perhaps that's the best they can do, but they want, they want nothing but good feedback on here. And perhaps this is them saying, Hey, we know the smugglers run attraction is fantastic. And we can whet your appetite with this because then we, uh, we have something even better than it coming a couple months later. If it is indeed a management decision, it's puzzling. But yeah. um, I got to believe there's some level of imagineering component to it where aspects of this aren't ready and they want it to be 100%. But if that's the case, then you'd assume that at least in Disney World, they could have gotten away with delaying the opening for another month because the opening date is well before anybody anticipated for the rest of the land. We were expecting October probably at the earliest for Disney World. And its opening was in August uh, August 31st, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, so the, the other thing that they're doing here that I absolutely 100% applaud is no fast pass plus at opening or no max pass or no fast pass out in Disneyland. How do you guys feel about that? I mean, I support that across the board. So certainly, <laughs> it, it, you know, any instance where they're not using it is, is uh, a, a plus in my book. I mean, the fact of the matter is this is going to be a shit show to use a technical <laughs> term anyway. And to add, you know, another layer of logistical complexity to it is bad because what a, yeah. what a fast pass 
See, I think that on Disney's mind, they they look at the FastPass system as a way to, uh, you know, control guest flow. But sure. the way that the way a consumer is going to look at FastPass is it's an assurance of being able to experience that attraction on a specific day at a specific time, right. and that's something that would be very irresponsible for them to do right now. Um, and as I've said many times on the uh, myriad of shows that I've been on <laughs> that have been canceled, um, <laughs> you, you know, one of the most important things you can do as a business is to control expectations. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that I understand what Disney's going for here with this in terms of that, because it seems like they're, they're simultaneously playing it up. And also, you know, it, it's good that I guess that the word is out that these things are not going to be both be open. That would be preferable to people showing up and finding out that 50% of the rides, uh, you know, new attractions that they wanted to go on weren't available. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that the smart money, if you're a guest is you have to, if you're, if you're planning a trip, near the opening of these new lands you just quite frankly i think you're ex you need to plan on not getting to experience it at all and hope that you do because if you if you show up in florida or in, in california with the expectation that you're going to get into that land even uh, let alone experience an attraction I, there's going to be a, a non-zero percentage of people who who have that expectation who are going to be severely disappointed i think they're setting themselves up for a uh interesting possible conundrum. Uh, what if this attraction opened without fast pass and it actually works pretty nicely <laughs> and you still got things like avatar flight of passage with massive lines because of, you know, a lot to do with the fast pass system. What if this works nicely? People are actually able to experience this attraction in a timely manner, but mm-hmm. then when they go and implement fast pass into it, it doubles or triples the wait time. People are going to be demanding, go back, go back, get rid, get rid of the fast pass. Like we have with other attractions. I don't, Unfor- unfortunately, I think that they are not ready to acknowledge fast pass as being a failure yet. Or my magic. But th- this I could disagree. be the this could be the first time that they're putting it out there for us to actually see a test run and, and it publicly be acknowledged whether this works or not because we're going to see it with our own eyes. We're going to see how it runs without fast pass, then we're eventually going to see how it runs with fast pass and we're going to know the results. But then do they claw it back and all of the other properties as well or do they no. just so they just let that ride, huh? That mistake's not in 20 years they fix it. <laughs> Here is my bold prediction on Star Wars. This does not open with FastPass as we currently know it, ever. Yep. That the current FastPass Plus system in Florida and the current MaxPass FastPass system in Disneyland is not what is going to be used here. I'd be Um, okay with that. I I think that this is the first public acknowledgement of Disney by anyone that isn't a frontline cast member that FastPass is an operational, I don't want to say nightmare, but it's an operational difficulty. And... Uh, I I saw it countless times on my last trip, and yes, that's anecdotal, but um, cast members fiddling with the app for trying to get a uh, ride reservation for the disability service and then complaining about the FastPass system and things not integrating and them just having to wave people through on marquee attractions rather than create an incident in the middle of uh, Pandora or Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. Well, if these attractions open and the queues don't have any fast pass signage mm-hmm. or equipment integrated into them. Isn't that almost an explicit acknowledgement that there's no intention to put it in? Because certainly you would want, I think I it's going to be put in just not in the current format. And I okay. think there was some wording, especially with the preview out in LA, at least at the rise of the resistance attraction, there, there were some reports that there was a separate fast pass queue. Yeah, no, there absolutely okay. is. But I think, um, and this is something that fast pass and name only. 
if, if yeah, you guys yeah. have been over to uh, to WDW Magic recently, uh, Martin is throwing information out there, and it's really just kind of a tease at this point that we are probably in line for some form of pay for play fast pass in the future, and whether it's on marquee new attractions only. That might be the approach that they have to take, where if you want a fast pass for this, you're either staying at club level or you're paying 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks for uh, one ride on Smuggler's Run, one ride on Rise of the Resistance. Otherwise, you're waiting standby. And that might be the way that they have to do it um, for people that want that early access and not have to wait in line. And I don't know what the ultimate end game of this will be. And it's the second time I've used that phrase, or possibly only the first, depending on what recordings retained. <laughs> But it seems that this is the first public acknowledgement that the overly complex ride reservation system that they currently use may be replaced with another equally overly complex ride reservation system that they charge for. You know, as as they say, what's old is new again. I mean, yeah. we we started out in these parks with a ticket based system, right, where you mm-hmm. you paid for the ability to go on it at all, right, and then then we went to the one entrance fee gets you you know unlimited riders trip on anything you want to go on, and do we end up in a place where sure you could still ride it for free, but you have to do so standby, and if you want to walk <laughs> walk on finger quotes, uh, <laughs> you need to pay. I mean, that to me seems like. It, I, it seems so probable as to almost be inevitable because it's basically a way for them to solve two problems at once. Once they can, one, they can print money essentially, mm-hmm. uh, and two, it addresses it. It addresses the the discrepancy between supply and demand because they create a problem and charge for the solution. That has been yeah. the Disney yeah. mantra for the last ten years, and this will be a way for them to make up some of that two billion dollars that they spent on next gen finally because they didn't get it from any of the other operational efficiencies that didn't generate from it. But so, it does seem to me that one of their approaches to dealing with inadequate capacity has been to raise ticket prices. And there's there seems to be an incredible amount of elasticity in pricing there, because despite the enormous rise in cost, the places are still packed to the gills. So we've we've been complaining about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Are we really, other than the initial lines, none of us are probably going to see. Let's let's go at this from a different perspective. We saw a lot of other very cool things coming to this land and very cool ideas coming to this land. What do you guys like most about what you saw over the past few weeks? I mean, for me, this is the most exciting, the most excited I've been about a development in Disney Park since I can remember. And mm-hmm. for what it's worth... I don't really care about Star Wars. I, I don't dislike it, but I'm I'm a lukewarm fan at best and probably an indifferent, if I'm being honest, uh, about the franchise itself. But to me, um, from someone who loves themed entertainment and, and mm-hmm. storytelling and you know, in a world setting, um, I think it's the most elaborate and in-depth uh, you know, embodiment of this sort of storytelling that's ever existed in the world. At least that's what they're cracking it up to be. I mean, it, it stands for a proposition I believe in dearly which is the value of competition mm-hmm. um and i think that a lot of people quite reasonably um when diagonally opened were asking the question at least whether or not universal creative had surpassed disney in terms of being able to create uh themed attractions and this is in my opinion disney's answer to that yes. um, i believe that it's going to be a resounding demonstration that there is still superiority there at disney or at least equivalence 
Um, if it falls short of that, that is going to be catastrophic. Uh, catas- <laughs> that's not a word. Not a word. <laughs> <laughs> catastrophic, you know, for the reputation of, of it's going to really cast a, a long shadow on, on Disney's ability to to compete with Universal. So I, I expect it's going to be pretty impressive. Uh, and there's some specific things that we heard about uh, through the press preview that happened, uh, I guess, a week and a half ago now that that I, I could tell you they're sort of in line with my shower time imagineering where I've had ideas where, you know, they're fun to think about, but I've dismissed them instantly because they were so in my mind, something that would just get laughed out of an actual proposal meeting because they were so beyond the scope of what imagineering would be willing to do. Uh, That's and, for later and on. We're seeing those. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I think we're going to see an incredible level of depth of storytelling and it's going to be incredibly immersive from everything that I've seen. It was pretty meh to me. <laughs> I'm sure it was. I'm, Not, sure it was. Uh, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, the, the thing I loved coming out of that the most was the descriptions I heard about Rise of the Resistance. I feel like I f- we're finally going to have that attraction uh, that we can puff our chest out about. Uh, the you know you watch the videos on you know some people obviously have got to experience it, but like the pirates ride over uh at shanghai things like that we're, we're finally going to have our equivalent here stateside it's been a long time since we've had that outstanding super uber e-ticket attraction and just everything that was said about it uh got me super super excited for it and to the extent that i i am willing to wait probably whatever it takes to see that ride uh at the same time i also have some excitement i i don't know how long they'll carry on with this, but the the character interactions, the quote unquote, you know, hundred cast members that'll be walking around that will, uh, you know, be interacting with you at all times. I did the play test several years ago in Frontierland at Disneyland uh, when they had this same deal going on where they were trying to recruit people to be part of two different groups that were going on different missions throughout Frontierland. I tell you, I did it for like four hours. It was one of the most fun things I've ever done in the parks. And you know, just based on the timing, you could tell that this this is probably connected back to that playtest. So I hope they commit themselves to actually keeping this going on so people can get lost in the experience. My wife and kids have already joked that, you know, when it opens, there's going to be at least one day per trip where they just won't see daddy at all because I'm going <laughs> to go run around acting like an idiot. But uh, yeah, nothing they said, uh, th- nothing that we've heard has deterred my excitement for this at all. I, I cannot wait. Uh, we've toyed with the idea of going, you know, maybe booking a trip to Disneyland in the fall to see this, uh, fully expecting that we would probably have to book some exorbitant package at a Disney resort. So we would get access to actually doing both things kind of surprised. They haven't announced something like that yet, but I think it's probably coming, uh, because I do think that's, that's how they're going to guarantee people to see these two attractions and do everything in there that they want. You're going to, you're going to pay for it and it'll probably, you know, it could either be through paid fast pass or it could be paid through, uh, you know, large resort uh, experiences. So my expectations obviously were heightened by all of this and how they treat it. I don't know. Uh, the first time that I'll have a chance to experience it will be out in Disneyland. And my original hope was this is going to be over D23 Expo that I would have three days in the parks over the Expo. And my hope was to get on each ride twice. Well, at this point, I don't know that Rise of the Resistance will be open. Um, Some components of the Millennium Falcon attraction that just really intrigued me was they're going to use 
kind of an abbreviated version of the Fallon pre-show concept, Dumbo, Fast and Furious, etc., where you're going to be in a holding room, and that room is the uh, the hollow chess room inside the Millennium Falcon. And it'll give guests an opportunity to just kind of explore the Falcon outside of the cockpit. And that in itself, it's something we said it that we, we kind of knew that we wanted that, but we didn't necessarily know that we were going to have that privilege because we think of a queue, we think of the queue probably winding in and around it, but not truly exploring it. And in this case, that just in itself is a great tease until you get into the cockpit where you're really going to get the, uh, the payoff. Um, I'm not. Uh, I'm. I'm probably somewhere in between you two. I didn't really grow up with the Star Wars movies, but I've become a fan in part because of the theme parks, and I'm very much looking forward to this uh, more so than anything stateside I've ever experienced uh, in a theme park. And expectations can't be higher. Um, they've done nothing to temper that, and I. I really can't wait until this until this opens the uh the joke though that uh that josh just mentioned it really wasn't intended to be a joke but um whether or not this is better than diagon alley uh they have scott trowbridge as a lead imagineer on here and he was uh at least involved in the initial planning of hogsmeade and was uh very much involved in universal's islands of adventure at the creation of it so you have a universal guy spearheading the biggest thing disney has done uh really since epcot yeah, I think I think this the world is watching for sure. Yeah, Absolutely, this is, this is Absolutely. going to be a statement one one way or the other. Disney is making a statement with the opening of these two lands, which I think is part of uh, why I'm a little bit surprised that they're they're literally opening it half baked. I mean, yeah. no pun intended. Um, I, I would it's it's confusing to me. I can't really figure out why they would not take a very obvious step to to make the best possible first impression that they could. So let's uh, get down to brass tacks here. Josh, how long would you wait for each ride? First time. Um, probably three hours. Ben? I was going to say the same three. Okay. Um, I'd bump it up higher. And I'm not doing this with uh, with kids, so that's a little bit different. I think if you go in and you see those opening day reports, and the opening day reports are going to be ridiculous, but... Um, let's say you go in with the expectation that it's going to be a four hour wait or even a six hour wait. Do you just not go? Do you wait several months? How long are you willing to wait until the lines die down? As long as it takes for the lines to die down. So like, would you wait a year? Yes, if we are. That's what we're doing. Okay. Um, I think over in Hollywood studios, it's safe to assume that Mickey and Minnie's runaway railway will also be open. Uh, prior to Galaxy's Edge, I think they chose that uh, that August date, knowing that they could have Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway open. It would be really silly if they didn't have that open as well, where you could at least spread out those two uh, yep. attractions. Beyond that, I don't I don't know what my uh, what my limit is, especially because the first time that I experience it, I'll either be with friends that are used to waiting six hours to go see a presentation at a D twenty three Expo, or uh, just by myself, who's also willing to do that. But um, I think that if I'm out in Disneyland, I got to get on it at least once. And if that means I wait six hours and so be it. Yeah. I mean, if you, to some degree, the best analogy I can think of is uh, people who wait in line back in the day, you know, to get an iPhone. Mm -hmm. If you can, 
if you have a group of friends that are into theme parks or, you know, where you can make that line experience part of the, of what you're hoping to get out of it, then I think that, you know, probably would justify doing it. And I think a lot of, there are a lot of those people, which is part of why these lines are going to be so long, because there are going to be people who are willing to experience that. I would use, I would endure it. They're going to experience it. Um, so, you know, it's, this is just going to take time. I mean, and Flight of Passage doesn't, didn't have the same hype train as this did. Um, but I, I was there opening weekend for that. And actually, Gary and I went on it the day before and got on in 45 minutes when it before it officially opened. But I wanted to uh, just say, all right, I was there opening day and I got on it opening day. Right. I waited an hour to get in the land and waited three hours for the ride. And I, that was amongst the shorter waits that people had that weekend. I, I was going to say, what, we're three years into that now. And I believe I saw a two hour, 210 minute uh, posted wait today. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, yeah. that kind of points to those operational concerns that that attraction has had and why there's so few fast passes related to it. And it goes to what Josh was saying uh, previously that may or may not made it, have made it into the show where, where <laughs> you have, if you're trying to schedule a time for something with a fast pass on a new attraction, you have to expect that that new attraction is going to have operational difficulties. And by not having people locked into a time and just saying, Hey, we're having problems right now. Your wait's going to be longer, but if you stay in line, we'll make every effort to get you on the ride. Um, that may be the path of least resistance for them. So. Well, that scares me even more though, if they're rushing these areas to get open by a certain time to counter maybe lack of attendance or lack of uh, bookings, you know, if these things are not 100% up and running, especially obviously millennium, millennium Falcon, uh, mm-hmm. Man, you talk about, we already think it's going to be a bad experience. So with it going, if that thing's down for extended periods of time during any day, yikes. So let's talk operationally about how that's set up. Um, That ride, I don't know if we've discussed it on this show. There are four turntables in that ride that have seven pods in them. If one of those breaks down, that cuts your capacity down to like Soren with two fingers. The one thing that they did do that... Uh, we discussed on here as well is they have two uh, theaters that are two cockpits that aren't part of that uh, turntable mechanism. So for guests that require more time to load for whatever reason, uh, they can go into that. So I think they've built in a little bit of help operationally, but this isn't Pirates of the Caribbean from a uh, efficiency standpoint. It's still probably close to like a splash mountain or something like that, which is still better than the Pandora rides. But if anything happens wrong, when you have the the highest of crowd demand for it, then you're going to see, you're going to see wait times balloon. And, well, and, and I, and I heard hours. that I heard that they built the millennium Falcon ride on top of the rise of resistance show building. So if the fire <laughs> alarm goes off, they have to shut down both rides, right? Thankfully they learned from that stupid mistake. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, though, it's it's a batch ride instead of like a continuous process ride. Yeah. So it's, you know, there's always, there's a lot less certainty in my mind as far as what the actual real capacity is going to be with a ride like this than, than with an Omnimover because there's so much potential um, for one person to hold up, you know, right. the experience of so many other people. So we will see. And I hope that you're right. Hopefully their, their uh, you know, capacity estimates are, are on the conservative side. But if, if it's... If it ends up that that's not the case, uh, then this could be a bag of hurt for quite a long time. 
it was stated by Bob Chapek that it was 1800 an hour. And for that math to work, um, it means uh, that it takes 48 seconds to load, 48 seconds to unload, and uh, you got a ride time. I, I wanted It was either four or four and a half minutes. I don't remember what the math was. But um, with that attraction, they're smart enough now where, all right, if somebody takes longer than that 48 seconds to load and the turntable has to slow down or stop, you can just elongate that attraction. It's not going to be like Toy Story Mania where all the targets go to zero. You just have a slightly longer experience. And because it's a video game that's rendered in real time, I suspect that they can probably prolong it Right. where it's not exactly four and a half minutes every single time or four minutes, whatever it is. Definitely they've more flexibility it. than with Soren, yeah. where it's a tape you know, or a yeah. fixed video. So they've probably got it set up similar to like the Flight of Passage pre-show where they've got built-in time extenders. And all right, you might have uh, like a, a fight sequence in space where it just lasts a little bit longer than you, know, you otherwise would and you get a little bit better target practice and that sort of thing. To there be are, fair... To be fair, we don't know this for sure. It could just have that Windows floating around screensaver deal. <laughs> it could be. We got Toast, flying, flying toasters. toasters. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there, uh, there's so much unknown here. They're keeping a lot under wraps, and I don't think it's because they're not confident in it. I think they have all the confidence in the world. And because they know that this that the expectations are so high and that they've hopefully met those expectations. That's the only reason why I can think they're justifying internally that they're doing a split opening. I hope they're right and that we're wrong. I fear that we're not because we've been critical and questioning a lot of things that they've done and decisions that they've made in the past. But um, suffice to say five years from now, we're not going to, we'll know that they did a split opening, but it's not going to really matter as long as both rides are great. And if that's the takeaway here, and they open they open three months apart, so be it. That's how it works out. Yep. Yeah, I mean, in ten years, the nature of this opening will be a distant memory that most people yeah. don't care about. But uh, in the meantime, it's going to be inter- it's going we're in an interesting it's an interesting time to have a Disney podcast because there's going to be a lot to analyze and talk about over the next six months to a year. In, in ten years. Uh, the only people that allowed into Galaxy's Edge will be the ones that stay at the Dis- at the Star Wars Hotel. Yes, <laughs> yes. So why don't we move away from news into, uh, I guess, a, a homework assignment again that we came up with. So I'll explain the rules of this and what the process of this was. Uh, last episode, I complained, uh, as I have in the past, about the cost of next gen and how I could have better spent that money. Um, so we estimated the cost of next gen as $2 billion. It very well could be higher than that. But we cut that back to one and a half billion to just be a, a little bit more fair. And then something else that has been the bane of my existence has been really the placement of Frozen Ever After. I think there's really nothing wrong with the ride itself other than its placement. Um, but with that, I uh, I had heard that the cost of that attraction was $75 million for the overlay. So we were tasked with the responsibility of each of us coming up with how we would better spend $1.575 billion dollars. And we would be doing so effectively beginning like 2012, 2013 and everything else that was attached to that. So like Pandora still happened. If we wanted Pandora to happen, we weren't, we were operating as if everything else happened uh, as it was. The only caveat would be like, say we wanted Pandora and Hollywood studios because um, we wanted to load balance the parks more. We could have done that and it wouldn't have changed anything, but we're just rewinding back to, when next gen started and how we would have better spent 
one and a half or one point five seven five billion dollars. So yep. those were the ramifications. We're trying to be realistic on budgets, and we may have a little bit of debate there. But I think we're all recognized that Disney has inflated prices for things and tried to reflect that in what we came up with. But we don't know what uh, each of us came up with. So do we want to do all at once or do we want to just take turns with how we'd spend certain aspects of money? I think we should go all at once or it'll be difficult to get through it. All right, Ben, why don't, why don't you kick us off? No pressure. Oh, thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> my thought was, have you ever opened your hotel room with your watch? <laughs> I call this my, my magic plus plus. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, uh, I left things as they are. Uh, okay. I, I like Frozen. Uh, okay. I have two little girls. Uh, and we're always trying to find things to do in Epcot, which is not the easiest thing to do with little kids these days. So I left Frozen as it is. Um, man, I don't know. Where should we start? Should we pick a park and go from there? I could start at the... Yeah, however you want. The, I, I, I'm going to start at the Magic Kingdom. Okay. I feel, you know, obviously this is with Tron going in. They had the uh, new Fantasyland. They had uh, Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. I feel like they've had a lot of solid additions over the years or things that are coming. So my thought was that they, they need to balance the levels of the park maybe a little bit. I think when Tron opens, things could get very heavy to that side of the park uh, with Space Mountain, Tron, and then Seven Dwarfs not far away. Uh, I thought an area of the park that could use some help would be Adventureland. Okay, I agree. And so my thought, I was going to take about $150 million. This is based on a, a couple of things that I saw, you know, trying to pull some numbers over what this one attraction cost to put in. But uh, I think we all agree Mystic Manor is an amazing attraction. Uh, the technology they use behind it. Now, granted, putting Mystic Manor in Adventureland probably wouldn't fly because you do have the Haunted Mansion so close by. And those are those are two pretty similar attached attractions as far as uh, the way they look on the outside. Inside, they're really not the same whatsoever. So instead of putting in the, the, the Mystic Manor attraction in Adventureland the way it is uh, seen overseas, I was thinking if we could bend the rules of space and time a little bit, something done <laughs> something done around Doctor Strange and the uh, Sanctum Centorium, or however you say it, uh, a Doctor Strange attraction that was along the lines of... Uh, mystic manner where we're seeing the artifacts maybe we're guided about around by his cape uh but you know a trackless ride that's built around a marvel property that could, they could maybe shoehorn in the park i think that's a big enough name that could draw people to that side of the park maybe back behind pirates between pirates and the jungle cruise you could make it a little extension back there there is room this, back there yeah yeah I, that's that's where i'm thinking this attraction would go and, and again a relatively modest budget 150 200 million dollars to go in there I would say you're probably closer to $200 million if you've got a trackless ride, but yeah, continue. We're not going to fully flesh out for listeners that are trying to figure out if we're going to, you know, come up with a scene by scene of a, uh, of each attraction. I don't think we're going to go that deep on this because we're hitting up probably, you know, seven to 10 things each. So, yep. Do we want to uh, continue with my other ideas around the other parks or is anybody want to chime in? Okay. So from there, I'm thinking to going over to, uh, we'll go to Epcot. Okay. And uh, again, we have Ratatouille going in. We have uh, Guardians of the Galaxy going in. We've had the, the, the Frozen. We've got the Play Pavilion. There's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, I <laughs> I have to say this, right? I have to put Coco in Mexico. I've, <laughs> it's, a, it's a sword that I'll die on. 
This this made my list too. I wonder what your budget is relative to mine. You know, I kept it relatively close to the uh, Frozen Ever After. I, yeah, you know, that was that was seventy five million. I said let's bump this to a hundred million. Okay, we're gonna have, we're gonna have to do something with a queue area that's probably outside that show uh, outside of the Mexico Pavilion building because there's just not enough room for a long line that this ride is going to demand because okay. it's Coco for crying out loud. That's again. <laughs> I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot of. I'm yeah. saying this. I'm yeah. saying this for one person, and he knows who he is if he's yeah. listening this deep in the show. Uh, but yeah, I'm not spending a lot of money there because I'm spending a lot of money back, probably behind the Morocco Pavilion, and this is all coming off of seeing the Beauty and the Beast attraction that's going into Tokyo that's blown everybody's minds. Uh, it's been dubbed a mega e-ticket attraction. I think after the new live-action film that comes out here. Uh, next month is a success, and then going back off the classic and original, I'm budgeting in about $300 million for a mega e-ticket Aladdin attraction to go behind the Morocco Pavilion. I think if you add that along with Ratatouille and then the stuff on the other side of the park, uh, it, there there needs to be one or two more major attractions that go into Epcot to really uh, flow out the crowd. So I'm, bo- I'm going with Aladdin over at Epcot for about $300 million. Animal Kingdom. Ben's uh, doubling, tripling down on uh, characters in, in the parks. <laughs> uh, well, it, it goes back to like what we said earlier, though. I, I, I'm. It's it's going to happen. It's the inevitable has already happened. So why mm-hmm. why fight it at this point? Going over to Animal Kingdom, which I'm. You'll love this because I'm going to add more characters. Uh, the first <laughs> the first thing I want to do though, if I can take a hundred million dollars and add an extra theater or two to Flight of Passage to help kill that line down, like Soren did. I would I'm going to jump into that. mine. Fifth Theater, Flight of Passage, $50 million. Longer Track, Navi River Journey, $50 million. That's what I budgeted. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm leaving Navi as it is, but I'm gonna, okay. if it's $50 million, I'm adding two new theaters to <laughs> Flight of Passage for $100 million. And then I'm going to, again, back to Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. I'm kind of amazed that we've never had an attraction based on this, but I think to help pull people away from uh, Avatar section and maybe also help kill that line down a little bit, Mega E ticket based on the Lion King. Uh, we're we're have. I think there's no way that film this summer is not just a massive, massive hit. Uh, I know we, there's been talk out there about maybe doing the Jungle. Uh, sorry, the Jungle Book based on the old the the Pirates uh, Shanghai version. But I think if you did, uh, uh, I'm gonna go trackless again. We, we can have trackless because <laughs> uh, it's all the rage these days. Budgeting three hundred million dollars in for a, a mega E ticket Lion King attraction, and then over at Hollywood Studios is uh i want to take about 100 million dollars for another pixar based dark ride uh, again okay. ha- having a having a family that needs these simple dark rides to uh mix in with the with the smaller younger crowd i've dealt with it for many years especially in that park there is very limited things to do unless they all really love sitting through shows all the time about 100 million dollars for a pixar dark ride and then that's this is also where i'm going to put the major bulk of my budget 450 million dollars Indiana Jones. We're going to have an adventure. I want a restaurant. I want to meet and greet, whatever it takes. But we need, you know, not on the Star Wars Galaxy Edge level, but there needs to be something that pulls people away from that back corner of the park. We can take the stunt show, clear out that whole space, build out a little bit behind it if needed, although the parking lot's going to have a lot to say about that these days. But <laughs> take taking a big budget, $450 million, and put that into uh, an Indiana Jones theme land with a major e-ticket attraction. And that gets us at about $1.5 billion. Yep. Got you pretty close there. Nice. So uh, your, your takeaway, Magic Kingdom, uh, Mystic Manor, Doctor Strange type ride. Epcot gets a Coco update and a major Aladdin e-ticket. 
uh, Studios gets a small Pixar dark ride and a um, Indiana Jones ride and restaurant, kind of a mini land. Animal Kingdom gets uh, additional capacity for Flight of Passage and a Lion King e-ticket. So you're talking probably three major e-tickets plus other improvements at the parks for the same cost as next gen. Yep, I nailed it. That's the end of the Marty uh, called show. Thank you, guys. We'll see you all next episode. Josh, you want to go or would you like me to go first? Uh, I can go. Okay, go ahead. We'll save the best for last. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so, uh, so I start off spending $36 million on a new fleet of monorails uh, because that is desperately needed. Seems and, a little low, but okay. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I mean, I figured $3 million each, uh, a fleet of 12. My total budget, I have about $200 million in buffer money. What okay. I call, what I like to call throwing around money. Um, so, to the extent that I'm off on some of these, uh, you know, we got to have a little bit of wiggle room there. Sure. I also allocated 500 million for a monorail expansion, okay. um, which I think that's probably high, and I think that would leave some for the fleet. Now, you'd have to add trains, but I would incorporate monorail service at least to the studios. Um, I think that makes sense in light of the fact that that park is going to have a bigger draw. I think the monorail is an iconic transportation system that people associate with that park. Um, it's been neglected, and I think that it is a a wise place to spend money because it is it it uh, res- it helps with a logistical issue because uh, you know the issue is not monorail versus no monorail. It's a old, dilapidated, unreliable monorail versus a new efficient system. So I think that the gains there can be pretty significant. Hey, um, if you if you need more money for your monorail project, we'll just kill the Main Street Theater. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, I don't have a lot of depth on that. Obviously, we'd have to look at the logistics as to what the route is. But it's, it's you know, there was some provision for that uh, when Epcot was built and when the studios were built. And, and I think that it's doable with the right, you know, urban planner involved. Um, but I'll just leave that. It's a very blue sky at that point, but that's something I would definitely allocate a significant amount of money to Josh wasting money on infrastructure. Just like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) the second thing I would do, I I would go to, this is a hybrid magic kingdom Epcot, uh, idea. And it's, it's one that I think you'll support because you've mentioned it several times on several shows. I would allocate $350 million for an autonomous electric car driving experience in magic kingdom so that, we can still have young kids have that quote unquote, uh, you, you know, life changing experience where they drive a car for the first time, but it is not in a noisy Briggs and Stratton fume spewing, disgusting, uh, y- you know, contraption like it is now. There you are killing my childhood again. <laughs> <laughs> now, where it gets a little interesting is the location for this would be in a show building where the Carousel of Progress is currently located. I would probably make it an indoor attraction. Um, and that would beg the question, well, where do we put Carousel of Progress? And I would move that to Epcot. And okay. I would probably put it where the Wonders of Life Pavilion is now. Okay. And its primary purpose would be as a pre-show for the $750 million <laughs> mega attraction that I would put where Mission Space is. Now, to be clear, I am not advocating for bringing back Horizons. But Horizons was just the name of an attraction. What, what made Horizons great was not that it was called Horizons. It wasn't even what the attraction was. It was that it was a thesis for all of Future World. It, and yes. it wasn't just about technology. It was about people. It was about the way that technology was going to influence life. I mean, the central theme of that ride was a family going to a birthday party. 
Right. Uh, it, it was very, very mundane, which I think is it's often overlooked, but it's very easy to think about what technology can do for mankind in the future and, and get lofty, you know, huge ideas like colonizing another planet. But more often than not, the the remarkable things that happen are much smaller in scale, changing the way, you know, a boyfriend and girlfriend talk to each other, uh, changing the way people plan on going to a birthday party. Uh, those sorts of things people can relate to. And I, I think that, you know, being curious about what future what the future of people like you is going to be is an inherently human experience. I mean, even when you call someone short-sighted, even they are looking at the future. You're just saying they're not looking far enough. It's it's in our nature to wonder how things are going to look in the future. So I think to have a an entire half of one of the largest theme parks in the world be called Future World and not have a, a, a thesis attraction there that actually describes and explains and tells the story of what the world might be like in the future it is an omission that is too large to be allowed to remain. Um, so again, it's not Horizons 2.0, it's not uh, Future Probe, but it is a it is something to tie together all of the notions of future world and and all of the people and all of the world and to say this is what the world might be like. And the idea that I had in the shower a couple of years ago that I alluded to earlier was having, and Tim laughed at me offline for using this word, but concatenating attractions. <laughs> where, and, and we've talked before on the on the show about nonlinear storytelling, which essentially exists because we have these little vignettes in the form of pavilions or in the form of attractions. But they are in a park where, you know, theme parks are random access, unlike a book, right? You can go, you can do one ride first, somebody else might do a different attraction first. And, and that's what makes it nonlinear. Um, but what we see with uh, the new Star Wars land, uh, the Rise of the Resistance attraction in particular, is that this experience that they're creating consists of multiple attractions, essentially, that are, that are, that are daisy-chained together so that you are experiencing these events in a particular order. And this, in my opinion, is something that Disney has actually done for years and has proven over and over again to be an incredibly effective storytelling mechanism. And I, I thought of a couple examples that I wanted to point out, um, and I think you'll agree with them, but they're, they're so basic that you might miss them. The first one, the TTC, right? There's something amazingly different about going to Magic Kingdom than, than say, Bush Gardens or Six Flags. You don't pull up to the park and park your car there and walk through the gate, right? You go on property, then you park at the TTC, then you take this monorail or a ferry boat, and now you go through another gate, and now you go on Main Street, and then you go on an attraction. And each of these little layers is disconnecting you from the outside world, which makes it that much easier to suspend disbelief and to be absorbed into the story that they want to tell. Uh, another example would be in the, uh, the uh, Living Seas Pavilion, back when they had the hydrolators there. You walk into the pavilion and you get on this, you know, it was basically an elevator that didn't move. It vibrated and had bubbles come up, right? It, it, most people wouldn't even consider that to be a ride, but it was an experience and it, it served to disconnect guests from the outside world, which made everything that came after it that much more immersive and compelling. And to me, what we're hearing about with Rise of the Resistance is so far the ultimate embodiment of that idea to take full you know, triple A e-ticket level attractions and to string them together to where you are going to experience one and then the other. And I think that the the impact that that's going to have on guests, particularly the first time, uh, is going to be unlike anything that anyone's ever experienced. And 
that's what I want to do with this new pavilion is let people have a little bit of the past with Carousel of Progress. That's the pre-show. I would change it instead of having a rotating theater. I would have a probably a trackless ride vehicle. I guess it could be a track that just went around it. Mm-hmm. And then either went underground or above ground over to the other side there where my new magnificent show building is going to be. And then I, I think I would, the one hangover, or no pun intended, the one carryover from Horizons that I would like to have is I would like it to be a suspended Omnimover system because I think that affords, there's something about being up in the air um, that I think is uh, it's just an interesting perspective that most people don't have. I mean, even something like Sora, just pick, pick, picking people up off the ground changes their perspective in a way that, that increases interest. So that would be the platform from which I would try and you know, explore what could happen in the future. So that's my big ticket item. And if there was any money left over, um, I would throw that over and renovate the Imagination Pavilion. I've got I got you at uh, one point six three six billion, so uh, so I've got you a little high. But I also oh, really? I'm, not, I'm not totally sure. I'm I'm I'm. You might have been combining some budgets here with your autonomous electric car experience over at the Magic Kingdom. I don't know if that's lumped in with the cost of your Epcot thesis attraction. I added it up earlier. I had one point three, but I, I I might have written down different numbers than what I said on the show. So well, as your accountant, I'm questioning. Uh, you know, look, you know, it wouldn't be just if we didn't go over budget. It's also going to be late, by the way. <laughs> yes. I did, exactly. I did. I did like your Horizons idea. Um, one question, though. What movie is that based around? <laughs> Deepwater Horizon. Deepwater <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Deep, Deep Horizon, the My Magic Plus story. Yeah. Hey, t- Tim, did I have an extra 50 million for my uh, great moments with Mr. Trump attraction on Main Street? <laughs> I forgot to add that in there. I add you at one one five exactly because you okay. didn't change Frozen. Okay, cool. Uh, and again, this is obviously where the tying it back to the exact numerical number is. I, it was a ballpark. That's I mean, that's not that's not the emphasis here. It's more we can take a pretty sizable number and do different things than what Disney did, and I think I think that's kind of the exercise we're trying to I, have here. I do want to. Uh, I appreciate. Uh, Josh's point on the TTC uh, that does remind me, I want to take like a hundred million and raz that and get some parking <laughs> right out front. So we don't have to do all those multiple things. I picture Ben in the boardroom and like the word, <laughs> raz, the word raz just comes up on the PowerPoint. Everyone, everyone just nods in an agreement, right? Yeah. <laughs> I've only seen the check that print. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So when we looked at this, it, it seems like uh, the approach Josh uh, took, you focused 100% on uh, <laughs> infrastructure, Magic Kingdom, and Epcot. Yeah. Um, and you you wanted to reestablish um, some level of Epcot's history. Uh, ben, you wanted to spread the wealth, uh, give something to every park, and actually you, for, for lack of a better word, shortchanged Magic Kingdom to a, a little bit with what you spent money on. Yep. And, uh the way that I did this, um, I actually surprisingly shortchanged my favorite park, Animal Kingdom. Because it's perfect already. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but what I wanted to do, there was I had some, some issues that I felt with the parks. Uh, I've complained that there needs to be a distinction between Tomorrowland and Future World. <laughs> that there are things where they don't belong. And... Uh, the load balancing of the parks uh, is such where the magic kingdom doesn't necessarily need uh, a huge e-ticket draw. I say this and I'm going to give it one, but it also needs 
just big capacity attractions, things like the Little Mermaid, which isn't necessarily an e-ticket draw, but it can absorb 2,000 people an hour. Yeah. So that's kind of the approach that I took. And so there's a lot of concentration on the Magic Kingdom and Epcot, um, but I also wanted to give more operationally to the other parks. So the very first thing on my list here is- Can I, I interrupt you before you get into it? I just forgot to mention something I wanted to say. Sure. And I know I'll forget it if I don't say it now. The reason I'm putting uh, the electric driving experience where Carousel of Progress is is so that Tron can be built where the Speedway is now because okay. it, it breaks my heart that that gorgeous building is being like put behind a, a huge eyesore. But I apologize for interrupting. Uh, I'm also putting Tron in a slightly different location as well. Um, nice. Although it's not even really on my list because it's still going into the Magic Kingdom. So um, I'm starting off here. Uh, 25 million bucks for fixing the fucking Yeti. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's happening. <laughs> Again, the exact words that are going to be on the PowerPoint. <laughs> It'll be Disney Parks blog post. Fix the effing Yeti. 25 million bucks. We're doing it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> To the point that I was making before, though, of having a distinction between Tomorrowland and Future World, um, I'm not taking the Ben approach. <laughs> I want intellectual properties based on movies in the Magic Kingdom. I want uh, original concepts in Epcot. So to the extent that I can do that with uh, this budget, I'm moving Guardians of the Galaxy over to, um, over to the Magic Kingdom. So the Magic Kingdom is now getting Tron and Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, so that doesn't cost me anything. It just is moving something from the Magic Kingdom to Epcot. Uh, but to do that, now you have three roller coasters in the Magic Kingdom. Uh, I am of the impression that Space Mountain is in a state of disrepair and desperate need of uh, reworking. And I've decided that much in the uh, uh, Horizons fanboy mold, we're putting Space Mountain over in Epcot. And it's going to cost us $300 million to do it. We're building it from scratch. And your destination is Bravo Centauri. It's going to be a nod to it's going to be a nod to Horizons. But Interesting. It's going to put it in a park where you've got a space uh, theme. You will now have three attractions in Future World that have the word space in there, which is a little bit short sighted on my part with Space Mountain, Mission Space, and Spaceship Earth. But that would be confusing at all. To <laughs> Not <guess>. at all. <laughs> and we have people that call it Mission Earth, uh, <laughs> Mission Mission Space Mountain, Spaceship Earth Mountain. Uh, well, will each one have a space restaurant? Yes, each one will have a space restaurant. So, uh, in the I, winter, they will have space heaters outside. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> since I'm moving things around, uh, I'm spending three hundred million dollars to move Space Mountain. I'm spending another two hundred to move it to Small World. That's going to Epcot as well. So, we use the term intellectual properties and associate it with movies, but I think in many cases, many of the movie-based intellectual properties are not as well known by name as Space Mountain or It's a Small World. And I think you put Space Mountain into Epcot, it's going to be just as popular as, as it is in the Magic Kingdom, if not more so. And you're going to get the draw over there as a result of it. Um, it's a small world we've talked about on here. I've talked about elsewhere. I just think it is the perfect attraction to bridge Future World and World Showcase. And by moving that, it allows me to put in those dark rides that I mentioned, uh, where it's just a capacity boost. You put in a frozen ride, you put in a tangled ride. I budgeted $150 million for each of them. And you've made the uh, heart blood of Walt Disney World, Fantasyland, bigger by adding in two major attractions based on recent movies. So... I've spent money so far on fixing the Yeti, $25 million. Space Mountain, $300 million. It's a Small World, $200 million. Frozen Ride, Tangled Ride, both in the Magic Kingdom uh, at $150 each. 
Hey, uh, for for my notes, will you be able to see Space Mountain from the UK Pavilion? That's the goal. Actually, we're going to make okay. it 500 <laughs> feet tall. Okay, okay. It's got to be the biggest mountain in, uh, you, uh, in you, Florida. As long as we spend $10 million on green and blue paint, no one yep. will ever know. <laughs> Nobody will notice. <laughs> uh, like Ben, uh, I'm doing an overlay on Coco uh, in the Mexico Pavilion. I only given it. I've only given it 75 million, but figured that since uh, Derek isn't on the show, we can get away with that. Suck uh, it. <laughs> uh, also, like Ben, I want to put more trackless rides in Epcot. So $300 million is going Imagination's way and Figment and Dreamfinder are coming back. Over at Hollywood Studios, um, I was thinking more operationally in this park because it's getting massive expansion. So I'm spending uh, $75 million to have Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway replace Voyage of the Little Mermaid as opposed to Great Movie Ride. Hmm. And then another $75 million to refer a Great Movie Ride. So you have two rides for 150 million bucks, um, but you have uh, a, a classic and great movie ride and hopefully a new classic in Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway uh, moved 100 feet to the right. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to do is when Toy Story Land was announced, I thought this was a great opportunity for putting a speedway style attraction. Uh, Josh didn't want to get rid of the one in Tomorrowland, or he did, but uh, wanted to come up with an alternative. I wanted to put it in a different park. So I think they should have spent an additional $100 million to integrate a speedway style attraction in and around Slinky Dog and have it so that, all right, you still have the opportunity. That would have been such a better fit. They could have like slot car themed it or something, and it actually would belong there instead of being completely out of place like it is now. Well, and the footprint's so big that you really could do that. Yeah, and you could wrap it around the coaster. It yeah, really I mean, that'd be yeah. cool. Yeah. That's a great idea. Thank you. Thank you. I try. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> and the uh, the last thing I wanted to do in the studios was $25 million to put facades behind Rock and Roller Coaster for a new Streets of America. And to do that, you could then put the Osborne lights in back again as a seasonal thing. <laughs> and over at the Animal Kingdom, the only money, money that I'm spending is a $25 million to fix the Yeti, uh, $50 million for a new theater for Flight of Passage, and $50 million for a longer Navi River Journey track. So that brought me to my 1.575. And it's not adding a bunch of new major attractions, but it's kind of fixing things that needed to be fixed in my mind, moving things where I felt they should be uh, to allow for future expansion, because that would allow uh, the magic kingdom to remove the speedway and either put Tron there um, or something else there. It's fantasy land adjacent. So that property is invaluable. Um, it still leaves Universe of Energy as fodder for a replacement. Still leaves Maelstrom fodder for an update. You still have Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular for a Hollywood Studios expansion while getting the ride counts up everywhere. So Magic Kingdom doesn't really have a ride count issue, but I think that brings Epcot to 12 or 13 rides. Hollywood Studios to, uh, I think, 11. Um, Animal Kingdom is still probably uh, getting the short stick there, but uh, at least has better capacity on the rides that it does have. So. It's interesting that we all took different approaches here, and I don't know that any one of them was right. I think we'd be thrilled with any any one of our three approaches that we took uh, tonight. I think the one thing that we can conclude with almost objective certainty is that the $1.575 billion that they spent on FastPass Plus was not nearly as fun as what any of these ideas would have been no, from, a, from a guest perspective. Uh, I like wearing my Captain America magic band around the park. <laughs> well, so that brings me to my, my second option. For one point five seven five billion dollars, buy back the Marvel theme park rights. I was yeah. almost I was gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> I nearly threw that out there as uh, one of my options. That or you know 
<laughs> whether get, whether or not that does it, whether or not that's worth it, I don't know. Yep. But certainly an option. Certainly yep. an option. I'm, so. I, I'm, I lack standing to even comment on that. <laughs> and at that point, uh, I think that's probably all we're going to have time for today. Do you guys have any other insight on uh, how we spent our money? No, I think I think you're right. It's interesting that we all have different approaches, but um, I, I think they just need to get us on the payroll. What are they waiting for? Exactly. So uh, we know well, there's a lot of information earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I think definitively, though, we can each take something that we probably loved from everybody else's idea. Um, yeah. And if we were to combine them all, I'm sure we could come up with something amenable to all three of us. But we should start a GoFundMe. <laughs> I got my winning lottery ticket tonight. So I'll, our, our 1.5 billion. We'll Disney, build this stuff. They did start a GoFundMe. It's called uh, charging $165 a day for a ticket. <laughs> yep. All right. I think that's going to wrap this episode of the Marty Called podcast. If you have any questions or topic ideas, we won't get to them, but you can email us at martycalled at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter under the username at martycalled or join in on the discussions in our Facebook group, provided that Facebook is actually working, facebook.com slash groups slash martycalled. We'd also appreciate our listeners bookmarking our Amazon affiliates link over on martycalled.com. doesn't cost you anything, but helps us fund the show with purchases you're going to make anyway. Josh, where can we find you online? Uh, utilidors.com, U-T-I-L doors with two O's.com. <laughs> Got our original beautiful Epcot merch there. Thank I was going to buy the original or the, uh, the actual spelling and just uh, redirect to my site. <laughs> <laughs> ben, what about you? Where can we find you online? Uh, you can, <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, find my top 10 columns, every issue of attractions magazine, and you can find me on Twitter at real skipper Ben. What Ben doesn't know is that I just mailed 75 back issues of Attractions Magazine to Derek Bergen at my at my dime because I wanted to get rid of them. Ha. How many of my top 10 columns are going to turn into Saturday sixes now? <laughs> I'm sure they will. Golly. The or toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find me at WDW Theme Parks on Twitter. Well, thanks for listening, guys. I don't know when we're going to be back again, but hopefully I'll be in a new house by then. And hopefully... Hooray. Hopefully everybody will get to hear Satan here in a few minutes at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if, if you're able to add that to the show, people might get a kick out of it. But you should turn your speakers down. Because, and if you're wearing headphones... Uh, We're sorry! Yeah, <laughs> be careful. I'll try to balance the audio. We'll see what happens. All right, see you guys. Later.
Iger's blocking me. Josh, for the seventh time, uh, <laughs> is there a way they can do this operationally where it isn't a disaster? I don't know how they can make it. Oh my god. <laughs> leave, leave that in. I just heard an explosion go off. <laughs> oh my god. Iger is pissed at us. <laughs> He's got his minions blocking our signal. <laughs> oh my god. I'm calling InfoWars. <laughs> they said this was gonna happen. <laughs> Um, perhaps the approach they do take is they interrupt any podcast that talks negatively about (laughs) it and does a really shitty auto-tune job on any voice that they uh (laughs) we have some evidence to support that yes (laughs) yes yes uh that's what's going on right now again josh if you hadn't picked that up (laughs) okay so I'm not sure what the answer is to uh, to fixing this. I didn't do a full reboot. Of yeah, your voice. You sound, you, like, <laughs> you, you sound like the body snatchers came and got you. Like, this is not the real Tim. You sound like uh, in, uh, which movie is it, where the guy gets hit with the trank dart in the uh, neck. Oh, yeah. And, you got a uh, fucking dart in your neck. <laughs> you got a dart? You're crazy. You're crazy. I love you, but you're crazy. Okay, now, now we're back normal again. Oh, yeah. Not, re- not really. Now. Okay, so I'm distorted now? You, no. sound, you sound like you got a fucking dirt in your neck. So that happened in the last 